0: You are listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International
1: Affairs.
2: Welcome to this uh, seminar. We have two panels today, and we'll start with the first one that we organize, the Swedish Institute of International Affairs in collaboration with SASNET at Lund University. The, the seminar will be uh, recorded and podcasted by this, the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. And uh, there are some hashtags you can use if you want to tweet about the event. We, uh, we have a, a, an excellent panel to discuss the first topic of today. But I'll give a brief introduction, then everyone will have a few minutes to present uh, their ideas about the topic, why India is important t- to Europe, and then we open up for discussions um, for, the, the, for about 20 minutes or so. And I, I, I really encourage you to to be active in, uh, in the, the discussion in the spirit of uh, Almedalen um One of the most important uh, stories of our times is the rise of Asian powers, both economically and politically. And India is one of those um, powers, um, and today we'll be discussing India's foreign policy, uh its regional uh, its position in regional and global affairs. And what implications India's foreign policy might have for Europe, or is already having for Europe? So I would like to present the panel. We have Mr. Hans Dahlgren, State Secretary for International and EU Affairs, in the office of Prime Minister Stefan Löfven. And Hans Dahlgren has worked on, um, has a long experience of working with India related issues in various capacities in Swedish government. We have Ms. Chada Islam, director for Europe uh, and Europo- geopolitics as friends of uh, Europe uh, think tank in Brussels. And we also have uh, Dr. Constantino Xavier uh, f- at the Brookings India in New Delhi, until recently at Carnegie, uh, also in New Delhi. Yeah, and, and he's an expert on India's regional uh, policies and uh, also India's relations to Europe. So, uh, with no further ado, I would like to uh, welcome the panelists, and uh, we'll start with uh, Hans uh, Dahlgren, please, if you like. We can all crowd around these tables.
1: Uh, okay. So. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for the invitation. It's uh, it's a little humbling to be here among so many scholars and uh, academics. I don't have that kind of background. I'm more of a backroom boy in politics but uh, I've been asked to give my perspective on uh, relations with India from a more personal point of view and I'll try to do that for a few minutes. The very first time that I came uh, pretty close to a prime minister of India was way back in 1972. This is when um, Sweden organized the very first summit on the environment. Organized by the United Nations, but hosted by Sweden. Ingemund Bengtsson was the minister in charge. Särker Oström, by the way, this now, was the inspirator of this uh, whole event. I was then a young reporter for Swedish television, following and covering this uh, big event in Stockholm. I still remember Indira Gandhi coming to the hall there in Folkeshus and giving an extremely forceful speech about the need for uh, taking a joint responsibility for the global climate and the global environment. Uh, Olof Palme was Prime Minister, he was the host of course, and a few years later I started to work myself for Olof Palme, I still remember him describing his own uh, encounters with Indira Gandhi, and uh, in a way also a very continuation of the uh, very close relationship that had established, had been established between his predecessors, Targa and Yavahara Nehru. Olof Palme said, and I think uh, this still is right, that in spite of the many differences between our two countries, not just in size, and in spite of the geographical distances that separate us. There is a a common base of shared values that do unite us. We do both subscribe to a um, democratic parliamentary system of government based on free association and the free press and a multitude of political parties. You see it all over here in and You see it also in India. There's also a reason, I think, and I've done it a few times, to pay tribute to the, to the very clear commitment to multilateralism today. But also something that has marked India's foreign policy through, through, throughout the years. We know, and we have cooperated closely with them in this um, area, we know India as a strong advocate of global cooperation within the framework of the United Nations. And I think India is the one nation that has contributed more troops to UN peacekeeping than any other nation in the world. I remember also Olof Palme and Indira Gandhi, and later Ingmar Karlsson and Rajiv Gandhi, working closely together during the 1980s on, uh, on several international projects. One was um, the Six Nation Initiative. It was a call on the nuclear weapon states to halt nuclear testing, and it also included, which is still valid, a very strong ideological message on the, on the right of the non-nuclears to also have a say in world affairs. This was in the 1980s. In one decade later, of course, India and Pakistan carried out their own <laughs> nuclear tests, which we in Sweden and many other countries around the world felt were was quite a tragic development. Turning now to the present, I think uh, we still share of course with India a a community of values, a strong commitment to democratic institutions and also to the rule of law and human rights. And we are quite impressed by the Indian economy, ranking now I understand as uh, the world's fastest growing large economy. And I'm very glad that, again, two Swedish prime, minister, two prime ministers, the Swedish and the Indian, again have established a close personal relationship. Mr. Modi and Mr. Levin have had a number of bilateral meetings. They have visited each other countries uh, with Prime Minister Modi's successful travel to Stockholm in uh, April this year, as uh, the latest, latest encounter. I can tell you they speak quite frequently on the phone on various matters. And I must say, it's a bit humbling being involved in this close dialogue between Sweden and India. We have 10 million people in our entire nation. We have an Indian population that is 130 times as much. And still the Prime Minister of India feels that he can do things together with the Prime Minister of Sweden. Our two countries can do great things together. We had, from the meeting uh, in Mumbai two years ago, a very specific joint statement by the two prime ministers, summarizing together what they can do in 31 points, I think it was. And when they met in Stockholm in April, they agreed also on a plan of action, how to implement these 31 points much better, and also to start a bilateral partnership on innovation. And also Mr Modi had a very specific proposal when he met um, Stefan Löfven in Sagerska huset in Stockholm Perhaps could India and Sweden form a joint task force on cyber security, cyber security, which is such an important thing for us, not least in the election mode, but which also, of course, for every country that is dependent on, on information technology is an important area. The answer was yes, of course, and I'm now in regular contact with my counterpart in Delhi to, to set up the, this task force. As you can understand, it is, I think, a privilege for Sweden to have this special relationship with India, but but it's also on a more general importance, I think, for the entire European Union and on the global level that there is, on that subcontinent, a huge nation like India that is a democratic power that supports multilateralism and the rules-based world order. And these days, you know, when <laughs> International rules and agreements and cooperation are being set aside, both in East and in West. This is very important. We need that cooperation. We need multilateralism more than ever to fight climate change, terrorism, to promote cyber security, to promote democratic values and human rights. So, so for that, my conclusion is we also need to do more with India. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. I think we move on to the next speaker, and then I'll um, post a a few questions uh, in the end of the panel to all of you. So please.
3: Thank you so much, Henrik, and it's actually absolutely lovely to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's really a privilege. And Hans is absolutely right. It is indeed a privilege also to work with India, but, but it's complicated. It's very complicated. I think you will agree, both of you. It's complicated because we, the European Union, I'm based in Brussels, follow it, you know, blow by blow. The European Union, up and down, sideways, upwards, um, downwards sometimes, and we're complicated. The European Union is a very complicated beast. We all know that. India, with all its multifaceted complexities, is very, very complicated, and we can, you know, we can talk about it a bit later. So it's complicated, but. You're absolutely right Hans, it is a privilege to work with India. And India now is slowly but surely moving up the European Union agenda. Uh, Foreign policy, security policy agenda. You've pointed to some of the areas we work together with India. Um, This is due to two things. Um, One, of course, under Narendra Modi, India is in a more dynamic, more vibrant mode reform, liberalization, some of it fast, some of it slow. But still, you know, the narrative in India, if you like, the narrative in India as a slow, plodding elephant compared to the tiger that is China and around, that's changing. And that's changing because of what's happening within India. But it's also changing because of the geopolitical environment. And I'm going to use the word Donald Trump. Um, He's turned the world upside down. All our anchors, all our beliefs are being really shaken to the core. And when we look at um, India, we see a partner, a like-minded country with which we can work with. But as I said, it's complicated. Now, we have the right tools. We have an EU-India strategic partnership. Uh, We can talk about what strategic partnership really means in the EU's uh, definition, but it's there. We have summits, annual summits. And Modi, uh, Prime Minister Modi, came to Brussels in March 2016, right after a very tragic terrorist attacks and gave a strong commitment to this relationship. So we're hearing back from India what we're telling them as well about how we can work together. We have also had a summit uh, last year in October, and that came up with quite a few, uh, a a really long laundry list, if you like, of areas where India and Europe can work together. So all of this is extremely good news. Um, So I would say, uh, Hendrik, that there are three... Key drivers for this relationship. It's geopolitics, as I said, it's the new era and we're looking for like-minded partners, countries that share our values and to some extent, i will say some extent, India does. Um, it's also about trade, economics and investments. India is a huge market, a growing market, so it's about geopolitics, economics and then I'll say it's about 21st century challenges, tackling issues like climate change, pandemics, poverty, immigration, Terrorism that brings us together. Uh, so let's let's look at these three drivers a little bit, slightly a little bit more in detail. I always say uh, when I'm talking to uh, friends like you, but when I'm also teaching at the College of Europe and at the VUB, it's uh, at the moment the European Union's relationship with Asia is based on A, B, C. So A is America first. And the changing of America, the changing of the Trump policies, has really woken up Europe. I don't know how far you've looked at this, but Europe is actually getting quite a shock. But after the first period of mourning, also beginning to think, yes, guys, we can do things together as Europeans, and especially in defense and security. So A is America first. B is Brexit. Brexit. Uh, Brexit has also shaken the European Union and made it think of its real values, what brings us all together and what also divides us. And Brexit, of course, has strong implications for India because of the historical connections. And C, is of course, is China. Uh, rising China has also made us look at India with fresh eyes, a new look. Uh, and, of, of course, the dominant narrative there is can we work with India to try and I hate that word, but contain. That is the word one has to use because that's in everyone's mind. Uh, can we work with India to try and, well, yes, contain China? So uh, India's role as a geopolitical player is now very much on our agenda. Whether India is ready or not to take up that challenge, I'm not so sure. We can discuss it. But at least in the, in the global environment, we're starting to talk of Indo-Pacific. This is a very new term, new-ish term um, that the Trump administration has come up with. We in Europe haven't adopted it yet. We still talk of the Asia-Pacific, but you know, this is something that's happened. So India is in the geopolitical spotlight. We're all looking at India. So then second, trade and investments, that's the second driver. And that, of course, I mean, Hans has talked about it. China's growing market, China's growing appetite for European goods, the emergence of a middle class in China, a middle class that wants European goods, that aspires to uh, to travel. All of this is bringing us closer together as well. Uh, so, India and Europe are in the process, a long, painful, very difficult process, of trying to negotiate a free trade agreement. We call it the Bilateral Trade and Investment Agreement, BTIA. Uh, and that negotiation has been going on for about 12 years. <laughs> it isn't easy, as I said, it's complicated. But anyway, so so the negotiations are still stalled, there are lots of disagreements about details, tariffs intellectual property protection, data security, mobility, India wants access to European markets for its labor force, skilled labor. All of these are, as always in trade negotiations, uh, very difficult topics to deal with. But um, Europe remains confident that the deal will be done. I don't know about India, Uh, Constantino will tell us, but it's a long-drawn, difficult, painful technical process. And even if an agreement is signed, uh, you know how Europe works. We're not sure it will be done and stamped very quickly. But um, India needs our technology. India wants European technology for its different programs. Making India, for instance, Clean, uh, clean cities, smart cities, clean India, all of those new ideas that Mr. Modi has come up with require foreign investment, require uh, cooperation with, with Europe. So they need our technology, we need their markets, they need our markets too, of course. Um, and then, you know, there's the defense industry. And as you know, the region, Asia, is engaged in a rather alarming arms race and... Uh, European companies, including Swedish companies are selling and doing big business across Asia, including in India. So third, and this is a more positive story if you like, uh, are how we're working with India on 21st century challenges and that, that those are areas where do you do require right? Multilateral rules. you require countries despite the differences, something that Mr. Trump hasn't understood yet or doesn't want to understand yet, you need to work together. You know, If you're going to work on climate change, you need to work it together. You need working on terrorism. It's a cross-border problem. You can't just resolve it within your borders. If you're working on non-proliferation, exactly the same thing. Online radicalization. Uh, Iran. Countries need to come together to work on Iran. And if there's going to be peace in the Korean peninsula... As we all hope, you also would need to work together. America can't do it alone. And that's something what the Koreans have told us repeatedly. So there you have it. It's a relationship that is full of dynamism, vibrancy, back and forth. Up and down, but at the moment we are riding rather high. There are lots of hopes and aspirations. There's a lot of challenges, but also untapped potential. This relationship, in my view, is underperforming at the moment. And uh, if we are all committed, like you are, Hans, and Sweden is obviously, and in some ways the European Union too, I think we can get it into higher gear, higher level, and make it really work at, for the advantage, right, the benefits of both India and and Europe. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much <laughs> for pointing out also the complexities. Uh, I think we we turn to you, Constantino, uh, also to get um, some views from Delhi, uh, where you're based. Um, so, uh, please. Thanks, Henrik. Um, thanks for having me at this wonderful uh, event. I
0: think it's very important to talk more about India and uh, this side of the world and think the Swedish Institute for International Affairs is lucky to have you because you're really leading uh, that uh, outreach towards India. My main point today is that uh, Indian Europe have to come together. This is the time for Indian Europe to come together. And it's the time for Indian Europe to come together because uh, they have a special responsibility in ensuring global stability, global peace. And in particular, let me use an old word, which Hans probably knows from the 70s and 80s, but global freedom and the openness of our institutions, the openness of our societies. And Indian Europe, as I think Hans uh, was mentioning when he was quoting from Olaf Palme's speech, I think it was in the 1980s, he was saying, we share those values, Sweden and India. So despite the differences in size, these two countries share the same outlook, uh, what you want to call a social democratic, liberal, uh, but towards a more open and inclusive society, and at the same time, international system. So. How do we reach um, towards a greater engagement between India and Sweden, India and Europe, and what's driving this? I think the first point, let me just quickly mention five, I think, points of um, how this is rolling out. The first one is I think we forget that Indian Europe are in fact neighbors, uh, geographic neighbors. They share an extended periphery in the Middle East, in the Gulf, uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, uh, which have, you know, for both sides, I think, very important stakes. So in terms of terrorism, in terms of security, in terms of migration, in terms of the Indian Ocean, even uh, on which the European markets rely for energy imports, for your trade, uh, these are important areas of geographic um, uh, overlapping interest between India and Europe. So that's, that's I think, needs to be underlined because we often forget that uh, common um, uh, periphery between India and Europe. The second one is, I think um, Sharda mentioned that a bit, is the importance of not taking each other for granted. Uh, the crises in Europe, the variety of crises, Brexit, uh, the economic recession, have actually increased Indian interest in Europe. You don't take Europe anymore for granted as an economic powerhouse, as an island of peace and stability. Uh, The EU in its uh, whole is actually India's largest trading partner. So for India, r- suddenly um, the realization has come that Europe uh, cannot just be criticized and made fun of, which was what happened many times 10, 15 years ago. And there they come, the boring Europeans are telling us about human rights, labor standards, climate change. There was often this very negative attitude in India towards Europe um, that has changed now. There's greater interest in, in, in European sustainable development experience and regulation and standards as India grows. And as India changes its focus from the quantity of growth, which was 10, 15 years really the imperative, we want to grow as fast and as quick as possible, towards a more nuanced policy of what quality of growth we want in India in the long term, in terms of the environment, in terms of the long term innovation prospect for the country, uh, bringing in um, uh, the youth. It's one of the youngest countries in Asia, unlike China and Japan, of course. The average age is in the mid-30s now but it's a country which will have to create 1 million jobs per month over the next 5 years 1 million jobs per month have to be created for the young and you know enthusiastic indians to be t- uh, integrated into this economy uh, the third i think aspect is that you know for 70 years we've both europe and india took the united states for granted it was, in many ways, the leading power of the free world, if you want. Uh, again, India would criticize the United States and stay on the non-alignment side in the third block. Sweden, in many ways, also played along on those lines. But now you have sort of a disappearance, if you want, of the United States we used to know. And this is also creating a lot of shock effect in Delhi, um, especially after 10 years between 2005 and 15, when India and the US came extremely close. Uh, the last 10 years. And that suddenly sort of disappeared, and you have in India the realization that you have to look at alternatives. And alternatives are Japan, the India-Japan relation today is one of the most interesting strategic and economic relationships in Asia. It's India Southeast Asia. It's India Australia, countries which traditionally would not talk to each other about security and strategic issues. Now they're talking very closely to each other. And finally, Europe, very importantly, coming in as a diverse pull for India to work uh, with other countries and not rely excessively on uh, the United States. The fourth point relates to China. I think Shada mentions that. And China is important because we have to realize the magnitude of what China is doing in terms of its financial capacity. You see it here in Europe. Um, um, I'm originally from Portugal, and Portugal today is being flooded with Chinese investment in key strategic sectors, telecommunications, infrastructure, energy. And this is beyond just the magnitude of the financial investment of China. There's importance in terms of um, the repercussions and the implications of such Chinese stakes across the region. In Europe, it's beginning to become apparent that with Chinese investments, you will have to make tough political choices on your freedoms and on your way of how you've operated as a political society here in Sweden and across Europe. Similarly, across Asia, you see that with Chinese investments, you've had smaller countries across Asia depending on China financially and therefore also being limited in their political and foreign policy maneuvering ground. So there's, as in economics, there's also no free lunches in geopolitics. For every free lunch from China we're getting these days, I think there will be tremendous political implications on the norms we've been accustomed to over the last decades. And you know, I think that for India is becoming very apparent. I think for Europe, it's also Becoming increasingly apparent. Finally, fifth point in terms of again coming back to democracy and freedom, you know, in terms of open societies, it sounds like an issue of principle and of norms and of values. Uh, it's a luxury we can have in Almadalen Week here, for example, which certainly we would not be able to have in China, but we could have one in India, I can assure you that, and there would be thousands of, of people participating and shouting, we would be drinking chai instead of coffee. But for sure, these are uh, issues which are not only a luxury, I think, we have t- start to look at free and open societies as a luxury an issue of principle and of belief. But I think it's important to connect the uh, political institutions we have with. Um, economic, material, concrete issues. For example, cybersecurity. Cybersecurity goes at the heart of the state-society relationship. We as individuals, as citizens of a country, how much rights do we want to give to the state for surveillance, for security? How much of our private data we want to give to the state and to private actors? These go to the heart of problems of democratic societies. And this is a debate you can have with with India, for example, and I think a very productive debate, because India faces the same problems and has a free parliament, which is trying to legislate and regulate cyber security, cyber surveillance. And that opens up, I think, a tremendous opportunity for Europe and India to talk to each other. Um, Let me just finalize with a quote from Nehru, 1936. Uh, Prime Minister Nehru, uh, the first Indian prime minister, this is still during the freedom struggle when India was fighting off the British. In 1936, he was speaking in Lahore, current Pakistan. And let me quote, he was saying that Asia and even India will play a determining part the future of world policy, and Europe has ceased to be the center of activity and interest. So he's predicting Europe, this is the end of Europe in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. Um, I would posit that the problem is not so much what we often talk to that it's Europe versus Asia, and both have to compete. It's between Europe and what kind of Asia, and which Asia, and which powers in Asia which are interested in working together with Europe for a more stable, secure, and free world.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to all three panelists for these uh, very interesting uh, presentations. Um, I I will just ask one question to each of you, but also feel free to comment on the other panelists' interventions here, and then we'll open up for a discussion. So, um, I'll ask you, Hans, the first question. <coughs> having followed both uh, uh, the swedish political leadership for decades uh, and also seen indian leaders for equally uh, amount of time do you see a change in mindset from uh, the indian side in how they um, think about their role in the world and their engagement with um, say europe and sweden and also, could you see a similar change in man- mindset from the Swedish political leadership in how they think of India and um, coming decades uh, and their relationship, how it evolves? Not on singular issues, but a general change in ideas about each other.
1: Well, absolutely yes, on both sides. Because there is no way in which you can avoid globalization. And what has happened these uh, 30 or 40 years since um, since that event in 1972 that I started in? Now this is clear. And, and what what you said about Donald Trump, ABC, America First, and I mean this has put such a uh, emphasis on global relations in a crisis situation as we have today. We have talked with the Indian side was it 14 years now about a free trade agreement. We we are certainly struggling. Uh, I ho- I certainly wish that we could have done this faster, and this is in the hands of the Commission, of course, but they will do their best, I'm sure, but we are at a point in history now when this whole basic uh, uh, precondition for a global interconnectivity is being challenged. It's not just one country for himself or herself. We have to continue, and for Sweden with Almost 70 percent of our exports going, uh, our, more than half of our production in Sweden, is sold abroad. We are so dependent on trade with not only within Europe and to the single market, but within uh, with the United States and so on. And now we have the signal from Washington this spring that they are starting with a with tariffs on steel and aluminum, and they are threatening now with putting tariffs on cars. And this trade war, however, it's going to end, is so disruptive for the whole thinking of a multilateral system that works to the benefit of all. So yes, there's been a change that really needs the attention, both in Delhi and in Stockholm and in Brussels.
2: And to you, Shada, (coughs) when we uh, discussed, um, I mean, Shada and I, we have uh, also a collaboration in a research network, um, a European research network. And when we started out that network, we were discussing EU India relations. But then we broaden it to Europe India relations. And I think this is a critical point. Um, We see bigger powers in Europe like France, Germany, having very strong bilateral relations to India. And we see a a complicated process within the EU institutions to formulate a strategy for India. So how do you how do you view this relationship Mm -hmm. between strong European powers going at it alone and EU institutions and their possibility to to forge a uh, a strong bilateral relationship.
3: Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Henrik. So uh, just for your background, the EU Commission, the External Action Service are drawing up uh, a new EU strategy on India. So it's a new sort of uh, blueprint for how India and Europe can work together on most of the issues that the three of us, the four of us have talked about. And uh, you know, you, I, I believe very sincerely. I mean, you know that the EU is, of course, the institutions, et cetera, But it is all of Europe. It's all of us together. The 28 still, for the moment. Let's see what happens, but it's all of us working together, so it's a joint project. And I think one of the mistakes we've made is to sort of make it a competition. The EU you know, with its institutions on one side and member states doing their own thing on the other side. And I think that's to our detriment. It's not a service to us or to our citizens. We are one Europe, and we should actually be flying everything we do under one banner, under one flag. And I think slowly but surely, that dynamic, that conversation is being heard uh, within the uh, EU you know, policymakers' uh, connection. So I think that is a very important thing. Europe is one, you know, and it's not just the EU that can lead. Sometimes it is the member states. If you look at the Iran deal. That was the EU, yes, Mogherini was there, Federica Mogherini, but it was also the top uh, leading member states, you know, Germany, France, and the UK. So when we work together in tandem, we do better. I, I sincerely believe that. And that's why, whether it comes to China or India or ASEAN, I think we have to look at us as one big thing. Now, the stories we tell ourselves, you know, those are so important. And the story we've been telling ourselves about India for so long has been that, you know, it's very slow, it's very plodding, nothing ever gets done. Um, and, and that has sort of become a barrier. And what I like now, I mean, the ABC, as I said, is that all perceptions, the way we did things, the way we thought... Those things are changing because we're under pressure. And as I said, the narrative on India now is changing. And that I find very, very interesting. But I really do believe that it has to be a joint enterprise. The European Union, yes, all the institutions, but also member states. And I'm very happy, Hans, that you're you know, focusing so much on Sweden, because I'm, I'm sure that, you know, Portugal has a, uh, has a long story to tell about India. Italy's story has been a little bit, uh, let's say, challenging recently because of the, inc- uh, the incident over the Marines. But it has a long history. Spain has a history. Uh, so all of these histories come together and make that narrative, that story, much more interesting than just, you know, EU, India doing another trade deal. You see what I mean? Mm. Yeah.
2: Thanks. Um, and to you Constantino, um, we have talked about uh, that with the focus is Europe-India, but there are two uh, countries and Hans brought that as up uh, uh, brought that up as well and Shada as well. Two other countries that play a major role in any discussion on Europe-India and that's China and the United States. Um, from the perspective, from your perspective and your location, um, We have seen uh, India's uh, uh, views on China changing a bit over time and now we see a little bit more pragmatic approach on certain issues and a a more competitive approach on other issues. But how much do you think, um, um, could you you tell us a little bit more about the India-China dynamic in Asia at the moment? Because I think this is critical to our discussion here.
0: Just to quickly point on on business, and business as usual, or trade as usual, negotiations as usual. For 10 years we've been negotiating now this this free trade deal. Uh, But uh, that's often the problems that we've seen trade and business only as trade and business, and not the larger political and strategic environment in which we need to do trade and business. And that's important for India. Paradoxically, I spoke so much about India being a democracy, but India is less economically open than China. It's much more difficult for Swedish companies to enter the, Ch- the, the Indian market and the Chinese market, and that's a paradox which is, I think, still um, there because India has opened up its economy very late, only after '91, uh, and is still, you know, fighting uh, domestic constituencies which are opposed to the economy opening up. And that's going to be, I think, an obstacle to talk about obstacles, too. Uh, and the second one, is think, on the European side, this narrow focus on trade, 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 and entering the t- Indian market and penetrating this big Indian market is very narrow, because there's larger political and strategic reasons why India matters. And I think that that's important, too. Uh, on, on the China issue, I mean, it's it's just um, it's a real, I hate the word, but it's a game-changer in Asia. Um, The amount, let's give you one example just for people to realize how this is really changing India's landscape in its immediate region. In Bangladesh, for example, which is an immediate neighbor of India, it's part of what's seen as India's immediate regional sphere of influence. It's a neighboring country. Um, uh, The president of China announced a package of economic loans and assistance of $24 billion. Um, India's current uh, comparative amount in Bangladesh is $3 billion. So eight times more the Chinese are currently investing in India's immediate neighborhood. This is not far away, somewhere in Mongolia, etc. This is an immediate neighborhood. So the economic connectivity between China and the region, the rest of the world, Europe, which I mentioned before, is going to have tremendous strategic implications in the long term. And it's always been like that. I mean, this, this idea that we can separate economics from security, I think it never worked in history, but it certainly is not working anymore today. Um, and that's going to be a tremendous challenge, because it's difficult for India, too. Uh, India, One of India's main trading partners is China. So you trade a lot with China. You, uh, you have a tremendous uh, trade asymmetry with China. So you export very little, but you import pretty much everything from China. So you want to have China as a trading partner, but you have a border conflict, you had a war in 1962, you have occasionally military standoffs. So that's a tremendous challenge, not only for India in the way it looks at China, I think for Europe too. Uh, for all countries engaging in China, this is going to be a
2: tremendous dilemma. Mm. All right, thank you so much. Uh, so we have a few minutes left, uh, I would like to open up the, the floor for, for questions. Uh, comments. Uh, um, and may I ask you, there might be many questions, so please uh, be uh, brief and precise. And if you can introduce yourself uh, when asking the question, that would be fine as well.
1: Is Thank it's you. On? It's on? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Good. Uh, my name is, uh, or oh, very close to this one, so I will be very brief. Um Erikoske from Utrikes Förbundet, so Swedish Association of International Affairs. Uh, and my question was uh, about brexit actually because brexit was mentioned briefly but could you give examples of like concrete ways that brexit has implications on the relationships between eu and india or sweden and india
3: mm-hmm. thanks right. So, just a very small example, and thank you very much for the question. Um, you know, when Brexit happened, there was this big illusion in the U- in the UK. Many big illusions in the UK, but this one, especially that you know, we were going to do deals with all our former colonies. You know, we're going to go there, get the deal, and they're going to sign. And we're, you know, we don't need Europe. We have our Commonwealth, right? And so, May, I think it was one of the first trips she made after the Brexit decision. She heads off to. India and you know she has this discussion with Narendra Modi and he basically says yeah fine, but we have this demand this demand this demand uh, you know very similar to what they're asking us in the EU, and you know one of them was obviously migration yeah this is something that India is very interested in and rightly so, and there of course you know England Britain couldn't do anything about it little England you know is no longer Great Britain let's be very frank I'm very blunt, um, and and so this and so that had an impact on how India. I mean, Constantino can back me up if you want, but that's made a difference in how India started looking at the EU as well. Mm -hmm. You know, okay, we've thought of uh, Britain as our gateway into Europe. We've got all our firms working there, Tata, big investor, I think the biggest foreign investor in the UK. Um, And they all started thinking, okay, I mean, when they leave... You know, we need still Europe. I mean, Europe is a huge market. We've got the 27 countries. And I think that really activated a new thinking in Delhi, which is saying, OK, now let, let's get serious about the EU uh, FTA with, with India. That's just one little um, aspect of how Brexit has impacted on this. I think it's given it more energy, given our relationship, our broader European relationship with India, slightly more energy and more dynamism, in and in a kind of a strategic, as Constantina was saying, a um, uh, globe to it, you know, an uh, umbrella to it. We're doing it for strategic reasons, not just for trade and business.
1: Yes, Hans. Just uh, an additional word on the EU and uh, Brexit and India. Uh, we, the 27 who will remain in the union, we have been pretty clear with the Brits that there is no way in which they can, while they are still a member negotiate anything with a third-party country. The authority to do that on behalf of the 28th remains with the 28. Now, 29th of March next year, they're going to leave and enter a transition period. We don't know how long that is going to be. It's said now, two years. I'm not sure it's going to be enough for the new relationship to be uh, achieved. No? Mm-hmm. So during that transition period, there is no way in which they're going to be allowed to enter any agreements. They can talk with others, of course, but they are not going to enter anything.
2: Questions? Comments? All clear?
3: Can I ask a question? Yes, sure. Okay. Yes, please. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I'm very curious because I really want to know from you, when you think of India, right, all of you here, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Can I, can I just pinpoint someone and say? What's the first thing you think about? <laughs> is it is it Gandhi? Is it Nehru? I, is it relationship with China, Pakistan? What what is? Yeah. I don't know. No. Would you like to ask? Yeah, uh, <laughs> <someone> anyone?
2: <laughs> we'll just yes.
3: You think of
4: non-standard forms of employment?
2: Uh, would you like to elaborate that a bit? <laughs> <laughs>
4: basically because I wrote a report on it but um, no but um, it's uh, it seems to be a, a quite complicated the labor market mm. and uh, many Swedish companies that operate in India uh, they rely on oi- or they rely on this all over the world um, the need for flexibility and mm. and uh, Indian labor and but but it's what I get is that it's uh, by uh, among the companies uh, they feel that it, it's a kind of um, the labor law is so um, <coughs> it's hard to fire people. Basically, that's what they say, and that uh, that is. Uh, but this is just more personal. I mean, it's uh, or pr- not personal, but I I get that not everyone thinks of India, <laughs> <laughs> and this is the first thing they. Make. Yeah just a yeah,
0: please. that's generally the impression we get right that the l- labor laws are extremely static and difficult but uh, at least in uh, for example in the garment sector and tex- textile sector i speak to a lot of people who work in that one employers uh, you know that actually their main concern is not firing but is retaining uh, the market is so non standard so flexible right so informal that, I mean, here in Europe, the problem is always, right, the issue of security, job security, et cetera, from the employee's perspective. There's actually employers who are interested in retaining and keeping, because they train people. They come from the village. In six months, they learn how to operate a machine. And within six months, they'll go somewhere else because they'll make a bit more money. So you're training them for free in many ways, and you lose them out very quickly. Um, But that's that's just to show how Europe and India also have very different priorities often. It's very difficult to... negotiate anything on that on that front in terms of harmonizing both uh, uh, labor laws in that sense. Mm. And just on Brexit, it's good yeah. news in Delhi. I, I agree with you. In Delhi itself, Brexit has been seen as good news. It's unclogged the relationship in Europe, or the EU if you want, in India, uh, because there's been an excessive, I'd say disproportionate focus on Britain within the EU. And as we know, Britain wasn't exactly <laughs> the biggest cheerleader of the EU ever. It always had a complicated relationship. So it's actually made it very clear now that you have a stronger EU, which is clear in its focus, and also a better relationship with India and Britain. It's made the relationship actually strong over the last year in terms of possibly renegotiating a lot of agreements or negotiating a lot of agreements they need. Mm. But the last one only, the, the Brexiting is important, but if you're sitting in Delhi these days, no one really cares about Brexit. And, you know, I've been to two days of your events here in and it's, I and mean, it's fascinating. I'm in love with this place and this event. I think it, your democracy is in very good health because this is really what democracy is about. Uh, but it's extremely important for Europe to wake up to the changes in Asia and have a discussion here also on how one million jobs per month in India are affecting your future, your future pensions, your future innovation capacity for your companies, uh, your future middle class, Uh, This is all going to affect a country which is 10 million strong here in Sweden, but also Europe, which is half the size in its totality than India. So this is only India with 1.2 billion people. So add China to that, and you have one third of humanity, which is literally trying to get a a smartphone, a car, a TV, uh, higher education, uh, and a long-term career. And this is going to... was a fundamental, I'm not going to use the word threat because I don't believe it's there, but the challenge and it's also an opportunity for Europe and India to work together and work out solutions uh, which are sustainable in the long term.
2: On that note, uh, oh, there's a oh, couple of more questions. Sorry, please, go ahead.
3: My name is Josephine and I'm a studied, I just graduated uh, from university in the United States, and I'm here as a tourist just to listen. And my question is, how do you think the arms race between Asian powers will end?
2: Hmm. Okay. That's good. <laughs> so should we take the last question as well? Uh, here in the front, and then we... Then we um, uh, did you have a question? No? All right. Mm. Yes. Uh, extremely important question about the arms race. Any predictions?
0: 72.
1: Either, it, either <laughs> it's going to be reversed <laughs> yeah. or it's going to kill us. Mm. Mm. We have to be aware of this. I mean, we have another existential issue really on our minds these days the climate. Eh? That's low, but it's really existential. And it's going to kill us if we don't do something about it. Mm. Not us, perhaps, but our grandchildren. So. But we you still have more fingers on the nuclear triggers than ever before. We may have fewer nuclear arms due to agreements between the major powers. But we have more countries that have access, including India and Pakistan Mm. and North Korea and Israel. I mean, the list is longer than ever before. This is a threat that we have to take seriously still in 2018. And if we don't reverse this, it's going to kill us.
2: I, th- I think you also, Shara, has some views on this.
3: Yeah, I uh, I do actually have uh, views on this. So the arms race in Asia, it's it's actually not an arms race. A, a lot of countries in the region are spending more and more on arms. Sometimes it's just because they're modernizing their armies. I mean, if you look at Indonesia, for instance, you know. It's really far back in terms of its uh, military, how modern the military is. So some of it is that. A lot of arms spending in China also is about modernization. If China is aspiring to be a great power, which it is, then it has to build up its military, according to the old IR theories, you know, hard power counts. Uh, I don't actually believe in that very much, but that's, the, uh, that's it is what it is. There's also hedging, of course, because people do uh, s- uh, are afraid of the rise of China. China's assertive policy in the South China Sea, for instance. So the neighbours are spending more and more on arms because they do fear that one, in, in a way, for deterrence purposes, if you like, right? Uh, so the arms race is really also being fueled, and I'm going to be very blunt here, by our own European companies, I mean, that. There is, that's where our markets are, you know? So where else do Europeans sell arms? They sell arms to the Middle East, they sell arms to Asia. So we are part of the problem uh, of what's happening in Asia. I'm not saying that if we didn't sell, others wouldn't, but you know, we are part of the challenge, if you like. And I totally agree with Hans that, despite all this arms, spending on arms, etc., what's really interesting in Asia today, and I follow this very closely, is what's happening behind the scenes, how much, countries are actually working together on many, many issues, including China and India, China, India, Japan, China, India, Japan, Korea. There's just been a meeting of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization at the time when the G7 was falling apart, you know, Trump was basically um, berating uh, the others, and the SCO, which we always in Europe said, oh, just a paper tiger, you know they don't do anything, you know, they don't work on anything. Well, they had a very successful meeting. India is part of that now. So there's a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, linkages between, uh, between leaders, between people. Tourism in the region, my God, you know, Chinese tourists going to Japan, Japanese tourists going to Korea. All of that is also bringing people together, arts. Um, a lot of Asian collaboration on arts, you know, on movies, b- bands, makeup, you know, idols. So I think Asia, you know, we've look at it from here and we see uh, the leaders making sometimes very bellicose statements in America, sorry to say, fueling that, you know, by... But inside that region, when you travel, you see competition, but you see cooperation as well. And that, for me, is the new world order. You know, if we're going to build a new world order which is, you know, less reliant on America, it has to be with Asia. That's where the powers are. And that's where us in Europe, we're strong because we know that you have to work together. We have our own experience of working together. Enemies coming together. Competitors coming together. And that's what we can teach or we can share, not teach, share with Asia. And that's what I think is our real power in Asia. It's not the arms, it's our soft power, our experiences, our values. And I think at least the people of Asia really respect and and, and like that.
2: The last last uh, word from on, on the nuclear
0: issue. I think it's a good example of how we have to um, recognize um, India's role. Um, the fact is that from the 1960s onwards, the nuclear world has changed. Some countries have nuclearized, including India and Pakistan. And the second reality we have to face is that some countries have been more responsible uh, as nuclear powers than others. Uh, India does have an excellent track record of non-proliferation of keeping its nukes safe of not proliferating, unlike, say, Pakistan and uh, other countries. Uh, So you have, in that sense, the importance of updating regimes, treaties we have in the 60s to a current reality. Do you want to have someone who's being responsible but not part of the club inside the club, or do you want to keep that person or that unit outside the club? Or are we going to update our club membership rules to bring these responsible people inside our club and continue updating the rules? The second one is on arms race. I think the other word is militarization. That's the real danger of militarization of new spaces, which could be cyber, uh, which could be resources, environmental resources and water, and also the South China Sea, for example. And how that undermines rules, principles and institutions, in the case of the South China Sea, the United Nations Convention for the Law of the Seas, uh, and principles and institutions which have allowed us to work to... Uh, be coexist in common spaces without militarization and escalation. And I think there's a special burden and special responsibility again. Uh, uh, by the way, the United States is not part of the United Nations Convention Law of the Sea. So that puts a special burden on Europe, India, Japan and other democratic countries in developing these institutions and keeping them updated to the current challenges.
2: Thank you so much. And I, on that note, I hope you uh, join me in a uh, big applaud for the panelists
0: find us on www.ui.se we are also on facebook and on twitter with ui sweden
3: and we're also on youtube where you can watch all our seminars and interviews catch you later